Thank you guys so much for coming out and thank you so much for hosting me. Um, I have uh, gained many gray hairs <laughs> in the course of writing this book. Um, so let me just say a little bit of background about myself. I'm not a political scientist, so I'm always um, nervous when I actually hang out with people who have real degrees. So my PhD is um, in the humanities. So I, the questions that I'm interested in are questions I think political scientists are broadly interested in, but the methods and the data that I use are typically different from, however, I, I, I do cooperate and collaborate very closely with political scientists. So towards the end of my talk, I'm gonna bring in some of the quantitative work that I've done. I'm, kind of an oddball for being a humanities person. I also want to thank Syra Wasim, who is the fabulous artist who, who did the cover. Um, it's kind of a, an interesting uh, back side story to this, is that the Pakistan army was so upset about the cover that OUP Pakistan, um, in their version, could not run it with this cover, which I think tells you quite a bit that even Oxford University Press in Pakistan has to cater uh, to the Pakistan's army preferences. Apparently it was very offensive that Musharraf is in um, tiger flip-flop. Okay, so um, here's my question. Why is Pakistan persistently revisionist? And what do I mean by revisionist? I really mean it in two ways. One, there's the territorial revisionism with respect to Kashmir. India is a status quo state. It more or less wants to have the LOC be the international border. And Pakistan obviously wants to uh, force India to acquiesce and, and give some concessions on the on the Kashmir issue. But it's also revisionist, Pakistan is in a, in a wider sense, and that is that Pakistan sees as itself the only state that can and therefore should resist India's rise in the international system. And so what I think is kind of puzzling is that Pakistan has fought several wars over Kashmir, um, it compo it, 71 was not fought over Kashmir, but it was fought uh, with India. It's lost every war, and yet Pakistan persists in this revisionism, and its revisionism, as I said, is, has even widened in scope. Even more problematically is that the tools that it's used to pursue this revisionism um, heavily reliant upon jihad under its expanding nuclear umbrella has actually imperiled the state itself. So what do I mean by that? Um, what's called by shorthand the Pakistani Taliban, the TTP, it wouldn't exist if there hadn't been previously an Afghan Taliban, a Hargathol Ansar, a Hargathol Jihad Islami, and the whole zoo of Deobandi militants that the Pakistan intelligence and agency, the ISI, and the army <laughs> has created to pursue their objectives in, a, in, in India but also in Afghanistan. So we expect states to abandon or revise policies that don't work, even modestly, and we certainly expect them to revise or abandon policies that undermine the very viability of the state. Yet this is not what we're seeing with Pakistan. The conventional wisdom that animates certainly US government policies towards Pakistan, and from what I have seen, um, the UK's policy is that Pakistan is a security-seeking state. And this means that there's something in our toolbox of national power that we can do to securitize Pakistan, to make Pakistan a secure state that will allow it to stop relying upon jihadi proxies in Kashmir and then by extension Afghanistan. Um, this gives rise to every time there's a new presidential candidate, um, Barack Obama did this when he was a candidate, they revisit this idea of Kashmir, that we need to have some grand bargain, that the United States, working with our allies, can, can put pressure on India to make some concession. Um, once this issue is resolved, Afghanistan can become peaceful. 
this happens all the time, like every eight years or so. Um, most recently, um, Ahmed Rashid and Barnett Rubin argued this in a piece called, it basically was advocating for this notion of a grand bargain. We fix Kashmir and then Afghanistan um, becomes okay. And of course, Barnett Rubin's important because he was very close advisor to the special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Now, I argue in the book, this is very pernicious because one, it assumes that all of Afghanistan-Pakistan issues resolve or can be reduced to the Indo-Pakistan security competition, but most importantly, it legitimizes Pakistan's claims to Kashmir. And I'm gonna say very categorically, Pakistan has no legitimate claims to Kashmir. Now, I'm, I want you to be very clear that I'm not absolving India of its malfeasance in Kashmir. But what I am doing is that I'm uncoupling the Kashmir issue from an international dispute between Rawalpindi slash Islamabad in Delhi, and I'm instead reframing it as a dispute between Delhi and Srinagar, taking Pakistan out of the puzzle because it has no legitimate claims. So not only do what we do politically, but also in terms of our assistance, we uh, treat Pakistan as a security-seeking state. And, and I'm going to argue that it's not a security-seeking state, that instead it is a greedy state. The, or an ideological state. And so I'm relying here upon the work of Charles Glazer. And um, you can read it, but let me, for those of you who can't, I'm also very nearsighted, so I have difficulty reading it. But he defines a purely ideological or greedy state as one which is fundamentally dissatisfied with status quo, desiring additional territory even when it's not required for security. What's funny about Pakistan when it talks about Kashmir, it could, if, if if one of us were writing an article, why Pakistan might care about Kashmir, we might want to phrase it in terms of water security. Actually, Pakistan doesn't do that. And when I talk about the evidence that I use in this study, it's surprising <coughs> how when Pakistan's military talks about Kashmir, it's almost always ideological. So when a friend of mine um, suggested that I read Glazer, I had this you know huge aha moment. It's like, that's exactly what this is. And the implications are pretty profound because if you treat an ideological or a greedy state like a security-seeking state, you actually incentivize worse behavior. So in other words, the United States government over the last 13 years with its 30-plus billion dollars, rather than making investments in a better Pakistan, we've actually been incentivizing it to continue doing what I would actually say is pernicious to our interests, which is expanding their nuclear umbrella, both um, by pursuing tactical nuclear weapons or battlefield nuclear weapons, and ever more investing in their zoo of militant groups. So in other words, we've made it worse, not better, all the while our Congress has been told by our policymakers that they're doing things that are supposed to help Pakistan and help us pursue our interests. So let me just very briefly talk about, about the method. So um, I'm very interested, obviously, in this, this notion of revisionism. And when I talk about this in the state, um, if we made a game called India and Pakistan and we set up, here's the rules of the game, here's what your national assets are, your instruments of power, and here's your objectives, your average 14-year-old who got stuck with the Pakistan hand would give up, right? Your average 14, if we just had the, you know, playing with game rationality, your average 14-year-old would make some concession to India because any concession tomorrow is going to be costlier than a concession today. Now, Pakistan's not irrational, so clearly something else is going on. And what I argue in the book is that it's the strategic culture that is flavoring the cost-benefit calculus, that what Pakistan is bringing to its cost-benefit calculus is not, strictly speaking, game rationality. It's bringing the weight of its history with India, the weight of the way in which it interprets its relationships with the world 
to inform the payoff matrix for its actions. When I did look at the political science literature, one thing I also found that was kind of lacking was that political scientists seem to assume that a state is revisionist or is not. And then these behaviors fall out of those assumed categories. I found very little discussion about why a state stays revisionist when the very viability of the state itself is imperiled. And I found very few people that talked about changing states, like becoming revisionist from status quo and vice versa, with, with one exception, this fellow Zions. Um, let me talk to you briefly about my data. So for some of you who know me, um, I had for many years gone to Pakistan, actually since 1991, and had interacted closely with the military. Um, my argument always was that they should at least be able to prevent, present their point of view. The problem with their point of view is that it's not, um, it doesn't frequently align with empiricism, with, with empirical history. I can put that less delicately. They make stuff up quite a bit, uh, quite a bit, in fact, often, all the time. Um, and so, you know, I do rely upon, in moments, salient conversations with specific individuals. But what, for all of you that have gone to Pakistan or interacted with Pakistan, the military in particular, they know their brief. They, and, and I can't speak to, to you all, but I can certainly speak to Americans. The average American interlocutor engaging with a Pakistani counterpart does not know the history of U.S.-Pakistan relations. And what the Pakistanis will do, particularly I'm talking about the military, I'm not talking about Pakistanis in general, although many other ordinary Pakistanis have taken on this history because of the diffusion into Pakistan's textbooks, they'll tell a very stylized version of history. Like one of my favorites is, we were your ally and you didn't defend us in the 65 war. Well, okay. Um, the treaty was against communist aggression and you started the war. And oh, by the way, under CETO, you were supposed to go to Vietnam and Korea and you did it, right? So they don't expect that kind of response. They get it from me, but the average American, both because we, we like to be liked, we won't, we won't be so nasty, or more generally because we're ignorant. Another one that they'll do is the F-16 drama oh, you ripped us off for the F-16s, this isn't actually the truth, but even George Bush fell for the F-16 drama, and he made his opening gambit to Musharraf, we're going to fix that F-16 situation. So they have a very effective way of stylizing history, and what that essentially does is it, is it creates this expanding ossified sense of obligation, that the Americans are so unreliable, and we have to constantly do more to win them over. So it means that the cost of every next engagement is ever more expensive because they have this false history of how we've let them down. Now, by the way, I'm not exculpating Americans by any means. Um, if you read the book, I'm incredibly critical, in fact, scathing, of, of how my country has enabled many aspects of the military. We didn't bring about the coups, but we've enabled them every time albeit for strategic reasons. And so we've actually stifled this process of democratization by virtue of always allying with the military. So I don't rely as my principal source of data upon these interviews, which makes this book different from, say, um, some of the books of my peers who are flown out by the Pakistan army and go hunting with them um, in the guise of doing research. So instead, the primary... Um, I'm not joking. That's how it happens. Um, so my primary evidence is really these publications. These are not meant for me or you. They're really conversations amongst themselves. These are not doctrine. Now, what's interesting, once the Pakistan army knew that researchers were beginning to use these resources, they've now become part of their psyop. So if you start reading Halal magazine, because they now know that people are, are onto this, 
um, you'll see stories that are meant for us. There was a, an interesting uh, fictitious news report about the Green Books about a year and a half ago where they were misrepresented as doctrine and Pakistan is changing the way it sees things from a conventional army to a counterinsurgent army, blah, 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 nonsense. But I am relying primarily upon these texts, and I've been collecting them since about 1999, so thousands, thousands, and thousands of pages I scan. And as when, I, when necessary, um, I also rely upon some of this other qualitative data that I've collected. Um, I do a lot of survey work in Pakistan, so my work is definitely mi mixed methods, and I rely upon some of this Lushker stuff that I've collected as well, um, appropriately in the book. All right, so let me just go through um, Zion's framework and explain its appeal, but also why it, it was inadequate. So Zion's was trying to explain why some states are what he calls unreasonably revisionist and reasonably revisionist. So an unreasonably revisionist state would be Nazi Germany, right? It just persisted with its revisionism until it was destroyed. Um, Iran and the Iraq War is another example that he gives of unreasonable revisionism. In contrast, Iraq in the Iran-Iraq War was he, for his classification, a reasonably revisionist state. It gave up when it realizes when it realized that the marginal cost wasn't compensating, the marginal benefit of the policy wasn't compensating for the marginal cost. And so he, he, his structure that he lays out is sort of obvious. But he's talking about domestic structures, and when you have an autocratic regime, it's mediated through this thing that he calls elite ideology. He doesn't problematize elite ideology, which I think for me becomes a focus of my work. If it's a pragmatic elite ideology, you get reasonable revisionism. If it's ideological, unreasonable, that's the names. And if you have a democratic regime, it goes through domestic politics. If the public opposes the policy, you get reasonable revisionism, no public opposition, unreasonable revisionism. So at first blush, this thing looked appealing, but obviously he's looking at single plays. He's looking at, he's looking at particular conflicts with a very limited duration and time. He's not looking at any case of revisionism that lasts 60 plus years, and of course Pakistan is a mixed regime type. So I noodled it and sort of rethought it, and this is what I came up for Pakistan. So I, I think we could agree that Pakistan's never been truly democratic. Even in the 50s, right after independence, it was really a military bureaucratic condominium. And Aisha Sadiqa is sitting in, the op sitting in the audience, and her book, I think, really speaks to these different kinds of regime types and how they've evolved. Um, with, the, with the exception of the early years of Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto's period, we really haven't seen a democratic leader running the show, and he didn't run the show for that long. So we generally have either an army-controlled democracy like we have right now, which is where the army can use different constitutional arrangements, or when, when they don't have this thing called 58 to b they use the street politics like they're doing right now, or working with the Supreme Court to keep the break on democracy, or we have direct army rule. And when we've had army-controlled democracy, in theory, this should go through domestic politics. And this is where we have an observational problem. The civilians, when they're in power, they almost always align with the preferences of the army. So we can't see if they want a different world. There might be some memoirs that they write after the fact, but was that really what they were thinking? So we really can't, the only thing that we can see is did they do things that were different from the army? And with very few exceptions, the answer is no, and, we, and basically the civilians do what the army wants them to do. And we could do the experiment, well, what if the army wasn't constantly you know, tapping them on the shoulder and reminding them of who's in charge? Well, where that has happened, and there's been a few periods when that's happened, the army intervenes. And we go right back here to direct army rule. 
And then I'm going to argue this gets mediated through the strategic culture of the army, which, by the way, does inform considerably domestic politics. There's been a lot of diffusion. Why is that? Because when the army's in charge, they have a lot of say over the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Information, media, and, and so forth. So the curriculum that Pakistanis read in school align very much with the fictions that the Pakistan army believes in or wants us to believe that they believe. Now, I'm going to argue, as a result of my study, that this is an ideological strategic culture, and we get this revisionism. It's not a pragmatic strategic culture. What's really interesting is that of all the things that I read, what would be an example of a pragmatic strategic culture of the Pakistan army? Pragmatism would say, we should have some kind of normalization with India, because some kind of normalization with India would be good for our economy, which means we can continue to invest in our military expenditures while not blowing the cap on the percent military investments, of, you know, the percentage of GDP spent on military investments. Um, never seen an article in an official Pakistani military publication that argues for any kind of normalization with India. And I mean never, I mean not one, not two, I mean zero, zero, literally the number zero. That's why I have this X here. And it's, it's absolutely gobsmacking that of all the stuff I've read from these guys, thousands of pages over six plus decades, the answer is zero, not a single one. It's real, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to emphasize the word zero enough. <laughs> it's just zero. Okay, um, so I'm aware that there is this debate in strategic culture. Um, some people don't think it's valuable. Some people think it is valuable. Proponents um, say it's how do we explain when states don't behave per game rationality. Opponents will say, well, you can't really isolate the DV from the IV. That's true, but I do a lot of quantitative work. Endogeneity happens. Um, this is kind of, it's a nice goal to aspire to, that you can have a completely independent DV and IV, but you know what? The world is infested with endogeneity um, in all kinds of studies that we do. So I don't want to, I'm not interested in resolving this debate because I'm not a political scientist and I, you know, there's nothing to be had by pissing off a bunch of smart people when I don't have tenure. <laughs> so um, I basically use Alistair Johnson's concept, and I call him Alistair because I'm not on the first name basis. I don't call him Ian. I've never met him. <laughs> so I use his concept of strategic culture um, as a heuristic. This is not a formal hypothesis testing. For me, it's a heuristic. And what I like about it is that he tries to be as rigorous as possible. He, he, he thinks that you should be able to observe strategic from non-strategic variables, that seems very reasonable. He argues that there should be a uniquely ordered set of, of choices that comes out of the strategic culture. Um, that seems pretty reasonable, too. And he says that we should be able to observe the strategic culture in cultural objects. Um, and we should be able to observe its transmission. So this is actually somewhat easy to do for a project like this because we're looking at the Pakistan army. Now, why can I justify this reduction? And I'm, oh, that, what the heck happened there? Um, so why can I justify reducing the strategic culture of Pakistan to that of the army? I couldn't do this exercise in India, right, because the military has no seat at the table. Um, so if I were to look at the strategic culture of the army, that would in no way have predictive power about what the army does. Um, I would argue um, there might be more value in a country like the United States where the army is so effective. We have, because of our military industrial complex, the army is very good at lobbying our Congress. Um, and because we tend to be a fairly pro-army, all the <laughs> senior leadership just has to leak a report like Stan, Daniel McChrystal 
And the next thing we know, he's leading our president to a policy that even our president doesn't want. So um, there's a range. But you certainly couldn't just say the strategic culture of an army predicts with any certainty what a country does in most places. But Pakistan is exception to this. Um, with respect to the levers of policy that most of us care about, the army controls that portfolio. Pakistanis can be angry that the parliament doesn't control defense policies, the decision to go to war, the prime minister doesn't have this either, but the reality is the Pakistan army does this. Um, whether or not our policies have contributed to this, no doubt that that's the case, but the reality is the army controls it. There have been a couple of exceptions when the politicians have um, opposed the military. So for example, um, Junejo in 98, excuse me, 1988, signed the Geneva Accords without specifying an Islamist to be in power in Afghanistan. That didn't last long. Zia was pissed, and he brought down the government as soon as he got the last tranche of US monies. Um, Sharif in 1999 with Cargill, we know what happened there. And I think we could also put an asterisk or a question mark, Sharif in 2014. All right, so I, I think most of you all know about militaries. I'm just going to pass through that unless you have questions about it in the Q&A. Okay, so let me just go through some of the takeaways. So actually my husband, peace be upon him, we were um, watching some Monty Python on a cold winter day and out pops a, the scene from the Black Knight. And my husband says, oh my God, that's Pakistan, right? 1971 war, it's just a flesh wound. Anyway, so I, I owe this to my husband, without whom my life would be so much more difficult because my husband is truly a saint, and he just enables. I, I have like a stay-at-home husband, so I'm really, really lucky to have that. So I just want to give the props to the spouse. So let me just walk through some of the, um, some of the takeaways. And admittedly, these things, they overlap considerably. But I think it's impossible to understate or overstate the degree to which the legacy of partition animates the way Pakistan's military has come to think. And, and actually, this is, this is a very fair critique that Pakistan has of its history. Uh, when people talk about Pakistan being a failed state, I actually get kind of annoyed with that because it's not. It's kind of like that symbiotic twin that got cut off at the shoulder, tossed in the waste bin, and it crawls out. I'm alive! Because, in fact, it got very little from the Raj, right? India kept almost all of the apparatus of state, all of the um, bureaucratic and military training infrastructure. And Pakistan had to recreate these ministries from scratch. And the Muslim League, unlike the Indian National Congress, was not a grassroots party. It had to leave its base in, in North India. And it had a choice between building the party or building the state. So it's actually miraculous that Pakistan managed to limp along as it did. And even in Indian historians will niggardly concede that India did not want to give Pakistan's transfer of the wealth, and it didn't want to um, proceed with the transfer of movable assets. Now, the Indians would say, well, that's because the first thing the Pakistanis did was support a war with us. So be it as it may, this does inform Pakistan's view towards India. And of course, the sanguinary nature of partition and the complete lack of security and the bloodshed, particularly in the Punjab, these are all things that I think are very real. Uh, when I look at um, militant recruitment, it's not a coincidence that so much military uh, militant recruitments coming out of the Punjab, and particularly those districts that are really um, that were very affected by partition and, and the memories thereof. This gives rise to um, another set of related issues pertaining to Pakistan's apprehensions about Afghanistan 
and strategic depth. So as you know, the security architecture of the Raj was meant to contend with two competing empires, right? The Russians and the Chinese. But from Pakistan's point of view, they received what most would agree to be the most active threat frontier of Afghanistan and fearing north towards Russia with a fraction of the Raj, uh, with, a, with a fraction of the Raj's assets. And very quickly, because of alliance relationships, the fear that came uh, from Afghanistan, via Afghanistan from Russia, also became infused with India, right? Because Pakistan became allied with the United States, Iran, and Turkey. Um, because of that, the United States did not support or did not give a lot of aid to Afghanistan with a, with a very limited period of time. So Afghanistan becomes um, aligned with the Soviet Union, who is, of course, close to India. So Afghanistan then becomes a secondary flank where its concerns about India are exposed. But I don't want you to think that the Indo-Afghan, the, the Pak-Afghanistan relationship is reducible to India. It's not. As you know, Afghanistan first objected to Pakistan's admission to the UN. It rejects the Durand line. It sort of, it, it has irredentist claims on large swaths of Pakistani territory. Whenever it wants to make a scene, it supports um, Baloch uh, separatism in Balochistan. And by the way, part of the Pashtun lands that it claims are actually in Balochistan. And of course, it rabble rouses with respect to Pakistan's Pashtun population. So this idea of strategic depth, it's not new. Actually, it was inherited from the British. I get very irritated when I see people ascribing it to Zia. That's just not true. And you see them talking about these different tools um, in some of the very first issues of the Pakistan Army Journal, for example. Um, and of course, the entire architecture of governing that whole portion of Pakistan that abuts the West was just completely continued from the British. It was called the Northwest Frontier Province until just a few years ago. It still uses the colonial era architecture to manage Fata. Curiously, India also inherited this notion of strategic depth with respect to NIFA, right, the Northeast Frontier Area, uh, with respect to China. But for whatever reason, and there's this one, one tantalizing line in a piece that John Garber wrote, Nehru jettisoned it. He doesn't provide a source, and I'm very, so if any of you work on NIFA, I'd, I'd be very curious to sort of do a compare and contrast, because everyone thinks that Pakistan is the exception in pursuing this strategic depth that we, that we now kind of deride. And actually, maybe Pakistan isn't the exception. Maybe India was the exception, that it basically jettisoned this entire colonial architecture that was built. Um, anyway, so that's, that's something I'm noodling around um, with, with respect to my next project. Related to this concept of partition, you cannot escape from the fact that the Pakistan army arrogates to itself the defense of the country's ideology as well as geography. Some people, again, want to say that this only goes back to Zia. It's just not true. I, I encourage you to read a piece that Ayub Khan wrote in 1954 in Foreign Affairs about the ideology of Pakistan and the role of the army in defending it. So this is, the, the idea here is that Pakistan is formed on the basis of the two-nation theory. At first blush, this seems kind of innocent. Two-nation theory says, as Pakistanis learn it, there's actually much more complexity to it. Um, talk about this in the Q&A. But basically, Muslims are equal nations to that of Hindus, and they cannot live under a Hindu, the tyranny of a Hindu majority. And then that was used as the argumentation for a separate state. So this means that Pakistan does not exist without this ideology. And for a number of reasons related to Pakistan's internal politics, every army chief 
has had a different way of instrumentalizing this two-nation theory. And I want you to think that they're using it in exactly the same way. Um, when Ayub Khan wanted to instrumentalize Islam, he, he basically engaged the Sufis, um, the, the, the shrine. So he would have shrines distribute Western medicine as a way of undermining and controlling their claim to deal with healing, like through, through giving amulets and so forth. Um, Zia, he was much more interested in, in working with the Deobundis and Jamaat. Um, and of course, Musharraf had his own idea of sort of enlightened moderation. But all of these fellows were basically trying to retain in their portfolio control of defining what is Islam and the role of Islam to the state. Because of course, the, their, always their concern was, this is something that obviously the Islamists would want. So they're always trying to keep the Islamists on a leash or in their pocket through co-optation or whatever means necessary. But the other reason why this is so important is that there is no legal claim that Pakistan has to Kashmir. There was an instrument of accession, so if they want to make a grouse about that, kind of Kalat, we could problematize his agreement to join Pakistan. By the way, these arguments also undercut India's claim because India also did not accept um, Junagadh's instrument of accession to Pakistan or the desire of the Hyderabadi Nizam to remain independent. So these notions of accession instruments cut both arguments both ways. It's a double-edged knife for both of those countries. But the two-nation theory is the ideological claim that Pakistan makes to Kashmir. That, and this is why they'll say Pakistan's, the process of partition was unfair and it was incomplete because they didn't get Kashmir. Now you can also at this point make not only a strategic culture argument but also a materialist argument or even institutionalist argument, and, and that is they're all equi they're equifinite, they all come to the same place, which is the army has a huge interest in maintaining what is essentially a civilizational conflict with India, right? Because if this conflict were to ever go away, how would they justify this enormous <laughs> conventional footprint? How would they justify being able to run the country whenever they want? How would they justify basically taking whatever piece of the budget pie and letting the country fend for itself with the rest? So, you know, you, you, multiple arguments sort of converge to the same place that the Pakistan army is heavily invested in conflict with India in perpetuity. And I, I think we have enough evidence that whenever the civilians have tried to have some sort of rapprochement, the army does something stupid. Um, all, you notice all the shelling that's going on right now? That's got a couple of purposes. One, heat up the jihad again to take some of the pressure off of the jihadis that are killing Pakistanis. After all, it's better to kill Indians than Pakistanis. Make Nawaz Sharif look a complete fool by, by spoiling any appetite for negotiations on the Indian end of things. Um, so this serves, you know, the shelling serves multiple purposes. Not to mention testing Modi, um, which is a, a, another confounding event. The, 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 the next finding that sort of comes out of all of these readings, and, and this was, I, I have to say I was kind of surprised. Everyone, I think everyone sees this in their later musings, the Pakistan army, but when I, how early I saw this, I was surprised. Right after the 1971 war, where even going back to the 14-year-olds to the playing the game of India and Pakistan, everyone would concede that Pakistan lost. But after that 71 war, and of course many Pakistanis will, will see it as a loss, they, you know, they, they try to throw Yahya Khan under the army, different parts of Pakistan try to deal with that loss in different ways. But the military basically dealt with it by saying Yahya Khan was a drunken lout. Um, and we got, he, he's gone, so let's rebuild ourselves. But what you see in their literature is really puzzling. Right after the loss and before India's nuclear test of 74, 
Um, you see articles that say, we're the only country that can resist India's rise. Yes, it's true, we lost East Pakistan, but quite frankly, we were taking on a much bigger neighbor. How could we defend two parts of our country that was separated by the expanse of India? This is actually a really remarkable argument that right after they've lost half their country, their response is, we're the only one that can challenge India. And, um, and of course, as you know, it was after the 71 war. Actually, clarify something. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get there in a second about the jihad under the, the nuclear umbrella. Um, so this is, this is just really kind of extraordinary. Like, um, I, I might be aging myself, but do you remember those weebles when we were kids? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. It wobbled, but it got right back up, and that's how it saw itself. Um, and this sort of reminds me, not sort of, um, this exactly was something that a former army chief told me several years ago. And the, the gravity of it, I don't think hit me until I continued seeing versions of this argument in, in these texts. But I said, you know, why did you do Cargill? Again, going back, you know, did you not game this out? Had you gamed this out even cursorily? You should have been able to predict the disaster that it was and therefore roll back the decision making. And people made institutional arguments. It was very stovepiped. It was just Musharraf and his, uh, and his commander of FCNA. It didn't involve ISI. The institutional arguments notwithstanding, even the army chief, Musharraf, should have been able to figure out that Cargo was a fiasco. But this, pre this other army chief that I was talking to, he says, you don't get it. Um, we will always, when a window presents itself, take a calculated risk. Because to do nothing is to accept India's hegemony. So we have to take a calculated risk, even if we know we're going to lose, just by virtue of doing nothing, we're defeated, and by doing something, we're not defeated. So in some sense, Pakistan is like an international insurgent, right? The insurgent doesn't have to defeat the counterinsurgent. It doesn't have to wield complete hegemony of force. It only has to present, prevent the counterinsurgent from doing that. So in other words, why Pakistan keeps engaging in these things, despite enormous cost, is that it doesn't see defeat in the way that most people think of defeat. Right? They have a, just a very different definition of defeat. Um, and so this is this unique definition that facilitates Pakistan constantly engaging in this brinkmanship. Now, this is worrisome on its own, on its own terms, but it's especially worrisome given that the primary tools that Pakistan has developed is what I call jihad under an ever-expanding umbrella. And I'm going to talk about this extensively at Rusi tomorrow. So, but let me just sort of point out a couple of things um, about this. This exercise, at least for me, revealed, and I, I think, a number of understandings that are not typical in the field of scholars that work on this, the nuclearization of South Asia. So first, there's, I think, this conventional wisdom that Pakistan got into the jihad business when the Americans did in the 80s. Not true. They obviously began in 47, 48. Um, that was very much a state-led, state-led is not the right word. It had state support. That's where this stuff begins. Um, anyone who doesn't believe that should read Shuja Nawaz's piece um, on the, the first Kashmir War, published in India Review in 2008. He was the brother of a former army chief very pro-army, so the fact that this dude would write this is actually pretty surprising, and the details with which he describes both provincial and eventually federal support for the first war, is, it's really eye-opening. Um, and the reason he could do this was he had access to archives because of his relationship to his, his deceased brother. 
In the 50s, because of their training with Americans, we were training them to, to be counterinsurgents with us. Um, that's why they were members of CETO and CENTO. That's why we had the Mutual Defense Pact. Um, well, and so while we're hanging out with them at the National Defense College, we're training them at Quetta, we're training them in American institutions, they're actually learning how to wage an insurgency. So you get these articles, they have like these checklists. Here's what we need to wage an insurgency on a mountainous jungle terrain. And they don't necessarily say Kashmir, but you have to be adult to not know what that jungly mountainous terrain is. And so infiltration in the 50s and 60s is a huge concept. There's so much, so much page space is dedicated to this idea of infiltration. Not a surprise that one of the authors who, who wrote this piece on infiltration was a leading um, officer in the 1965 war, which was, of course, an exercise in, in infiltration itself. They talk a lot about people's armies in this period, um, recognizing this conventional imbalance. So as early as the 50s and 60s, you see the Pakistanis innovating at this low end of the conflict spectrum in complete acknowledgment that it can't deal with India's conventional superiority. Now, we can have a debate about the, the conventional superiority. Is it, was it really conventionally superior, particularly on the, the international border? doesn't matter, because that's how they, they viewed it as such. By the time you get to the 70s, this is, and you would see episodically, like even the 47 48 war and the 65 war, they would call the intruders jihadis. They would have religious leaders pass fatwas to call them um, jihadis. But by the time you get to the 70s, you're more or less seeing this term jihad used. And um, contrary to what Pakistanis say um, in their efforts to sort of make Americans feel guilty and pull out the checkbook, um, we didn't suck them into our jihad, far from it. That's just really bad history. When um, King Zahir Shah was ousted by Daoud in um, 73, and began imposing Soviet-backed Islamization, the Islamists began fleeing into Iran and Pakistan, respectively. It was Zulfiq Ali Bhutto, actually, who set up the ISI cell in 1974. So they were actually running their own Soviet jihad policy on their own dime. And um, there was a brief period after Zia took over when there was some optimism that um, Dowd would, result, would, would acquiesce to accepting the Durand line and Zia let go. And then Dowd got assassinated, and then Zia resumed once again the, the full-on ISI-ran jihad policy in Afghanistan. Uh, they wanted Carter to back it. Carter said no. Some of you may or may not know that we first sanctioned Pakistan in April of 79. I want you to hang on to that date because that's very important. So clearly we weren't planning on sucking them into a jihad if we're sanctioning them in April 79 because those sanctions, and we sanctioned them for nuclear proliferation. Um, the sanctions made it illegal for us to give them security assistance. So we're not able to actually give them overt security assistance until 1982 after Reagan comes into power and gets a waiver. Okay? So Pakistan begins this policy long, this, by policy I mean the use of non-state actors masquerading as Islamists, but they're not only using people acting as Islamists. In the 1980s, while it's thoroughly involved in Afghanistan, it's also thoroughly involved in supporting the Sikh insurgency. And India and Pakistan nearly go to war in this period over it. And they're also continuing to interfere in Kashmir, although that's not the full-fledged insurgency that it will be by 1989. And they're still messing around in the northeast of India. So it's a very impressive suite of non-state actors that Pakistan is running in the 1980s. I mean, it really is impressive that they're, that they're able to do this. So that's the sort of timeline for non-state actors. Let's talk about... The, the nuclear umbrella timeline. 
If you read Paul Kapoor's work on the stability, instability slash instability and stability paradox, I generally quite like that work, but he gets one thing very wrong. He thinks Pakistan's nuclear period begins in 1990. It doesn't. It begins much, much earlier than 1990. And that's why he can't, in his work, explain for a lot of the behaviors I just talked about, the Northeast stuff, the Punjab insurgency, what's happening in Kashmir. He can't explain that until 1990 because he didn't understand that our sanctions of Pakistan did not begin in 1990. What the Presser Amendment was from 1985 has been largely misunderstood in much of the writings. The Presser Amendment passed in June of 85 was meant to resolve this growing concern in in the American interagency process about Pakistan's continued acquisition of nuclear weapons. CIA knew this from the beginning. We knew about AQ Khan long before 2002. You all know about it too. So you had part of the CIA Um, that was very concerned about this, going back to the 70s. Carter first wanted to sanction Pakistan in 77, okay? Um, And then you had these non-proliferation opponents in Congress that also wanted to cut Pakistan off. But the Reagan administration and the, the, the Russia folks at CIA obviously wanted to keep the monies going. So you have this interagency problem. And Congress, of course, didn't want to continue the waiver. And that was required to continue arming Pakistan was this waiver. So the Presser Amendment was actually a compromise that involved the Pakistani Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, it involved the Reagan administration and Congress to say, we basically moved the red line because the sanctions in April of 79 were about enrichment and reprocessing. What Pressler said was, the president just has to say Pakistan doesn't have a bomb. So we moved this red line from processing, reprocessing and enrichment to doesn't have a bomb. And then this becomes basically um, threading the difference between an outright lie and exploiting the small differences that existed amongst different analysts in the interagency process. So many analysts believe, and they will say straight up, that Reagan lied. That when he said with the first certification Pakistan didn't have the bomb, we knew that they had the bomb, but they were exploiting technical differences in the interagency process. By the time 1990 comes along, we no longer need to arm them, and we're no longer we're no longer willing to have our president apparently plagiarize or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Lie before Congress. We now know, based upon Pakistani sources and other declassified stuff, that in fact Pakistan had the bomb, a crude bomb that could be delivered from a C-130 as early as 1980, right? So um, what you, when I see Pakistan's behavior with respect to its use of non-state actors. And Pakistanis talk about this in their literature is like a nuclear overhang. As early as the 70s, writers were saying, it doesn't matter what we have, it matters what the Indians think we may have. It doesn't matter what we'll do, it matters what the Indians think we may or may not do. And so this sort of, so it's interesting, if Kapoor had only read this stuff before he wrote his book, his arguments would be strengthened. But he, he didn't read this stuff, and I, I, it would have been great to have collaborated on him, collaborated um, with him on this, because his argument would have so, been so much more um, robust. So I actually see Pakistan exploiting its, its nuclear umbrella as early as circa 1980. And, I, and, and in the book, um, I present some of the quantitative analysis that sort of looks at that argument, looking at the various um, nuclear, various nuclearizing versus non-nuclear periods and the, the rate of, of conflict, dividing conflict months um, and peace months per all months in that period. So, look, so do, how do we end this? <laughs> um, this sort of, we don't want to think, I mean, gee, can this, is it always going to be like this? Can it get better? Can it possibly be worse? 
I'm not the most creative person, so this is not an exhaustive list, but these are the things that seem most obvious to me, sort of exogenous game changers. In other words, things that the Pakistan army can't directly influence. Well, the first is some major confrontation with the United States from a proxy that's not entirely on their leash, right? It's not exactly exogenous given their relationship. It's possible, but boy, I don't know how much more majorly confrontational um, things should have gotten when Osama bin Laden was caught in Abdabad. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, how, can it get any worse? Um, oh, yeah, killing our troops in Afghanistan with their Taliban proxies in Lashkar Taiba. Mm, we just seem, our response is, I'm going to bend over and write another check for you. Um, but I don't know what would, what would the pocket, what would have to happen before we say enough is enough is enough? I, I just don't know. Um, natural disasters. Actually, Pakistan is uh, more resilient, and it's not the Anatole Levin argument of bribery and brothery um, that makes Pakistan so resilient. It's actually, at the very grassroots level, Pakistanis are able to very quickly mobilize resources. To Sometimes the organizations are not terribly civil, right? Jamaat Islami, not terribly civil. But... The, the, the analogy that I use is like when you have a really nasty battlefield wound and you don't have a, a medic around, you put the, the clotting agent in your thigh to cut off your bifeme bleed, you're not going to survive that if you don't get to a hospital, but you're not going to bleed to death right there. And so what these local CSO, civil society organizations, do, they're basically the clotting agent while the big aid helps. So if you just take a look at the timeline that it takes for big aid to get there, if it weren't for these CSOs getting in there, this would have been much worse. If you compare the actual damage of the Pakistani floods of 2010 to the Haiti earthquake, Pakistan was by far worse hit. And it had about one one-hundredth of the aid because the international community just had aid fatigue with Pakistan. Remember the earthquake in 2005? Plus there's all this whole terrorism thing, Lashkar Taiba. Um, people just didn't want to open up their pockets for Pakistan, whereas Haiti was just a gush with aid. Several years out, you don't see the scars of this flood. There was no secondary death, wave of death. There was no famine. Pakistan even had a bumper crop. Um, you look at Haiti. Haiti still looks like it's been hit by an earthquake yesterday. So, again, natural disasters. Is what's, and by the way, the Pakistan Army, this is where the U.S. is kind of culpable. We let the Pakistan Army look great, right? International helicopters were doing the sorties, but we let the Pakistani military be the face of that. So, the military always comes out smelling really nice after these disasters. So that's not going to be something that's going to undermine their position in society. Um, international partners forging a consensus because of <coughs> not going to happen. Um, when has there been an international consensus to punish Pakistan? Never. <laughs> All right. Um, in, so let's think about some of these endogenous game changers. This democratic transition, um, I've been a cynic about this. <laughs> Because the army has such, they're the biggest losers in true democratization. And, you know, look at this, these idiots on the street, Dim and Dimmer, um, Qadri and Imran Khan. I mean, what an ISI-funded farce. Um, that he has followers that take, that they have followers that take them seriously just makes me wonder, fuck, they have nuclear weapons and they believe this. So um, the idea of a democratic transition, um, I'm not optimistic about that. And even if there was a democratic transition, um, we would have to, for us to see real change, we'd have to have civilian leaders that want something different. Um, I don't see evidence of that, although I will say this is a necessary but insufficient condition to get a different outcome in Pakistan. At least we're, at least we're rolling the dice with numbers other than one printed on all six sides of the dice, right? With the army, we got the, we're rolling the dice, but it's always the same thing that's coming up. 
Civil and, civil and what I call uncivil society gets a lot of press. Um, I'm not impressed with this because some of the, the most effective civil society in Pakistan are really, really uncivil. Jamaat al-Dawah, Jamaat Islami, um, name any of the major Islamist organizations, they're not civil. And yet they're also the ones that are most effective in mobilizing social media, much more effective than, than what I would call liberal. And I don't mean liberal as in American or British values. I mean respect for fundamental human rights, letting girls go to education. I'm not saying run around in bikinis um, on mall in, in, in Lahore. I want to be very clear what I'm talking about when I talk about liberal society. Basically respecting the commitments that Pakistan has made um, under various UN conventions. I think that they've, made, they've signed on to those conventions about the treatment of women and children. It seems reasonable. You signed up to it, honor it, dudes. Um, and even the, the younger generation, the, the so-called Imran Parast, they call themselves burghers. If you, if you look at surveys on, the, on this particular segment of Pakistan society, they're very much a deep state constituent. These are, these are not folks that, um, that think the army is the problem. They're not people who even think the Pakistan Taliban is a problem. They think the United States, Mossad, and Raw is a problem because we're actually funding uh, the TTP. So do I see hope there in this generation of folk? Not a chance. Economic shocks? Again, because we are so afraid of Pakistan failing, we never allow Pakistan to bear the full consequences of its behavior. So this is like methadone, right? We know that Pakistan is a crack addict, but we're too afraid of what happens when Pakistan gets sober. So we're just happy to keep the methadone drip. Um, we could have a pretty elaborate argument that if we actually took Pakistan off of all international aid, especially the multilateral IMF, World Bank, ABD, that the Pakistan army would be more vulnerable to criticism from Pakistanis. Right? Because Pakistanis would then have to start asking, why do you get to hog all the resources when we get nothing? But right now, the Pakistan army can be pretty reliant um, that it can take whatever resources it wants and that the international community won't let Pakistan fail through various international buyouts like the IMF. So we have a very pernicious system whereby we are all enabling and we're insulating Pakistan from the kind of outrage that ordinarily these kinds of policies would engender. But let, there is one thing that I found that, that I thought is a really curious. Now, I'm not Panglossian. I'm not, I don't want you to think I'm going to leave here on a happy note. But there is something really interesting. There's, so there's this idea that the Pakistan army is Islamizing. And we see, we see that there's been a lot of infiltration, not just in the, in the army, but in the Navy and the Air Force. Look at any major attack on Pakistan's ISI or military infrastructure. And you see that this is... There's serious infiltration. How much it is, doesn't, it's questionable. But there's also this really interesting ex, sort of accidental countervailing thing happening. So what you have here, um, and I'll never get more data, so don't ask me about 2005 and after, so I'm never going to get it again. This is a one-shot deal. What you have here is district-level officer production data. So this is not officer-level data, but it's how many officers each district produce in any given year um, this is 1972, and the darker the colors, like brown and red, show you the, because the, the heat map shows you more intensively officer-producing districts. And you can see the vast majority of Pakistan is not producing any districts. This is mostly coming from the Punjab, parts of what they call Azad Kashmir, and parts of what's now KPK. This is 82, 92, 2002, 2005. 
And what you can see is that now almost every district is producing an officer, at least one officer. And you can actually see some of them are producing quite a bit of officers, particularly in Sindh, where well, there's nothing. And look at, all, look at all the heat that's coming up here. Same thing here. Why is the Pakistan Army doing this? Well, it, it, so in the United States, we have this happening from the grassroots up. Minorities, women, gay folk, they use their service in the military to leverage for more access to rights, right? I did my time, I got shot at, I'm a gay dude, can I please get married, right? I was just as worthy of a bullet as a straight dude or a woman who, is, who has served in combat. Why is it that I only get 70% of what a dude makes when I go into the civilian occupation? So they're using their time in service to leverage, same thing with African Americans during the Civil Rights era. What the Pak Army is doing is just the opposite. Um, rather than um, folks using their service to agitate for rights, they are hoping that by extending their reach into these previous districts, and by the way, Sindh and Balochistan are problematic districts for the Pakistani army, because they tend to view the army as a Baloch, or excuse me, as a Pashtun Punjabi condominium looting and ruining the country. So if they can make these folks partners in this corporation of running and ruining the country, they will be less antagonistic towards the project. So in other words, they're doing what armies do, which is using the army as, as a great sausage maker for the nation. Now, you could ask the question, well, what if they're not really, what if these are just Punjabis in Balochistan that they're recruiting? Okay, well, I've got evidence that that's not the case, but let's just hold that thought and say that they are. Let's just, so it turns out I've got data to this. It's a natural experiment. Um, thing. So these questions, um, I just, I'm going to walk you through them. By the way, this is um, also on my website. This is a big survey I did with my colleague Jacob Shapiro and Neil Mahotra. We asked them their opinions about jihad. Is it, you know, blowing up stuff or is it making yourself better? Um, how much do you think Pakistan is governed according to Sharia? Um, if there were more Sharia, would it be better or worse? Um, do you want more or less Sharia? Um, do you think Pakistan's governed by elect representatives elected by the people? Um, civilians should control the military for the constitution. When should the army be able to take over? Think about the political preferences of Muslims in occupied Kashmir. So these are, these are just a handful of questions that are illustrative, that there's a free rider problem associated with going into these new districts. So the first thing that I have is let's let's take a look at Punjabis versus um, Punjabis in the Punjab versus Punjabis everywhere else. Because when we put this paper through review, people say, well, what if they're just recruiting Punjabis in Balochistan? Don't they think the same? Like, well, I'm not sure why you thought that, but it turns out I've got evidence that says that's just not the case. So let's take this issue that um, jihad is a militarized struggle. Punjabis in the Punjab, 28% of them think that that's the case compared to 12% of Punjabis elsewhere. So in other words, a Punjabi living somewhere else in the country is less than half likely as a Punjabi in the Punjab to have this view. And by the way, the more stars, it means it's more significant. These numbers are quite large. So um, not, not this number. These numbers are quite large. So when you have 100, 100, you're increasing your likelihood of something being significant. So this, but the stars tell you how significant it is. Um, so for the most part, um, jihad is a personal struggle for righteousness. You know, that's sort of the, 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 the great jihad versus the lesser jihad. Punjabis in the Punjab, only 15% of them think that. 
Punjabis elsewhere, 47% of them think that way. And I could just I could go through all of these metrics. And what you see, just by virtue of being a Punjabi anywhere else but the Punjab, you're not likely to hold the same views. That shouldn't be surprising, but the reviewer was astonished that that was the case. But I, I, I can't control the reviewer. Now, what is interesting is that Punjabis and non-Punjabis in the Punjab look much more alike. There is only one metric where they're substantively different, and that is the belief that their government is governed completely by elected representatives. 41% of Punjabis think that compared to 26 non-Punjabis. But on the other metrics that we look at, even if the differences are significant, because the numbers are large, the differences are small. So already we're seeing that, do I have an explanatory mechanism for why this is the case? No, I don't. Um, and then let's take this other case. Let's take a look at Punjabis versus Sindhis in Sindh. So again, going back to that recruiter, the, the reviewer saying, well, maybe they're just recruiting Punjabis from Sindh. Um, the same thing holds in many cases. So jihad is a militarized struggle. Punjabis in the Sindh, 5% think that, compared to Sindhis in the Sindh, 18%. So just comparing these fellows to their co-ethnics in the Punjab, you see a huge difference. And, and the other chart I have is looking at Balochistan very similarly. So depending on which chart you look at, sometimes one population is better on the jihad metric. But my point is this. The army, this is the unintended consequences of them expanding their reach to these new districts. Now, armies are very good at playing whack-a-mole, right? So if you don't play along with what the army wants you to think, They've got a couple of options, right? They don't promote you, and you get kicked out. Maybe you, maybe you of your own, like I don't really dig this, and you don't, and you don't retain as well as someone else who fits the mold. Or maybe because the benefits are so great, you just keep your mouth shut and you go along. So we're, we can't say right now whether or not the army is, by virtue of the army, going to squish these differences or if we're gonna see some really different kind of officers popping up. Um, the other thing that, that makes, so we have this whole issue of their, their proximity to these jihadi groups. But we also have this other problem that most Pakistani unit deaths now are gonna be due to Pakistanis, not due to Indians. So there's a lot of countervailing pressures and events that are taking place in the officer corps. But I think this is really kind of interesting. And I'm not gonna end with this idea that, gee, everything is going to be better because of this. But this is, for me, the only source, small though it is, that we might have pressure for positive change. Thank you.